Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We are uh, continuing on, actually, from last week. Um, you might recall that you were here that uh, we're focusing on how God has plans for us. We talked about how he's plans in the past. We talked about how we learned from the past and um, how he continues to work things together. And maybe you see that as we begin this today. This week we're going to talk about the future and how God again has plans and how we can trust him in the midst of the future and uncertain circumstances. God does have a sense of humor. So I guess he planned this. I maybe thought I needed an extra illustration, so here you are going to today. today. And so we're going to take a look at that. Before we do, though, a real quick throwback I have. Uh, if you remember last week as we were talking about that, one of the uh, things I mentioned was that uh, there were contestants on a Jeopardy show that didn't know the answer to the question. They couldn't fill in the word to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed was the word. They couldn't fill in. Hallowed, hallowed be thy name, which means, you know, glorified, sanctified, and feared is your name. I might have actually been wrong in that word, apparently, because a friend of mine sent a video um, of a young girl, a uh, little girl who has uh, an answer to the word that should be filled in there. So why don't we take a look at that real quick? Let me know if I was right or wrong. Right. Yeah. What is God's name? Howard. Howard. Howard? How do you know his name is Howard? Right? We like look out the window of the airplane, there's a car driving on the runway. 
GPS, uh, one GPS told a man to make a hard right, he took out the guy's gospel and swerved on a boat launch and ran into the waters of Alaska Bay. That's an interesting way to get a car wash. And then a woman uh, took a 90-mile trip to Brussels, but her GPS led her on a path where she actually drove 900 miles across Europe. I don't know how this one worked out, but it took her two sunsets, apparently, to determine something might be wrong with the GPS. So when you are being led by the wrong authority, it can be painful. In fact, it can lead you in the absolute wrong direction. There was another guy who used the GPS. The story was he, he knew that the uh, GPS was telling him his normal route to work was totally congested, so he decided to take a different route to work. He takes off his using GPS. He's going along, and all of a sudden he gets a call from his wife, and his wife says, Honey, listen, I, I know you're on this other, this other route. Be careful. I'm looking at the news. There's a helicopter filming, apparently. There's a guy driving the wrong way on that expressway, and the response from her husband is, one guy, there are hundreds of them. <laughs> so you see where this can go. We, we fear the uncertain future sometimes. It's difficult, and we need to know who can guide us and give us the right directions. The last time we'd seen how there were many parallels, and we've been doing this series in Exodus, and something's going to come back. Many parallels between the nation of Israel's God led them out and led them on a path uh, through, uh, from Egypt to the Promised Land and also Jesus, who we might call true Israel. And so we saw how Jesus had trusted that past. He learned from that past. He led the word of God and worked him. But there are uh, other parallels that we didn't mention last week. And one particular step is, you know, kind of comes out at me as I think about um, this idea of a certain future and trusting in the face of that. Um, Israel had escaped in the time of Exodus a king. Right? They had, they had escaped Pharaoh. Pharaoh was trying to kill them. And so they left that area and they went uh, through this Exodus into a new land. We see something very similar in the Gospels when Jesus is born. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that it says an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He told Joseph this. Jesus had just been born. And what the angel says is, get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So again, Jesus was very young, one or two years, and, um, and, and the angel's telling him, there's somebody looking, there's a king looking for this kid to kill him. Sound familiar? They had seen this before. And so, of course, he escapes to Egypt and then eventually comes out of Egypt. And we actually get Matthew telling us that this is another way, a, a supreme way, in which God fulfilled the scripture. He says, it's always fulfilled what the Lord said to the prophet. It was the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. In fact, Hosea, when he was mentioned that originally, he was thinking of the nation Israel, we see, when we go back and look and read Isaiah. He said, I loved my son. I loved Israel out of Egypt. I called my son. And now Jesus, again, is fulfilling that as true Israel in a very personal way. But think about this. When I, when I, when I read that, I think about what kind of, what kind of things was Joseph and others like him facing in that moment? What were they thinking about? Their circumstances, the unknowns, the uncertainties, the fear of that. You know, a little time later, let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Just a little bit later, after you know, Jesus was older, he was actually set to go into ministry. We, we read this in Luke chapter 3. I want to read all these specific details. I want to tell you why in a second. He gives us a lot of details here. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Arteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, I think he, he kind of know what he's talking about now, he's giving all the markers, the word of God came to John, it's John the Baptist we talked about him last week, son of Zechariah of the wilderness. Now Luke's providing all that for two reasons. The first one's not as important, but it is important to notice that he's making us clear here that these are not myths. This is a historical account, a historical person. Many people make that mistake when they look at the scripture. They think, oh, you're a story. But C.S. Lewis said it best. He was a professor of medieval Renaissance literature. And he said this. He said, if the biblical critic tells me that something in the gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends or romances he has read and how well his pattern is trained in detecting them by the flavor. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myth all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them is like this. They don't write like that. So he's giving us a historical account. But notice what he's showing us. He's showing us an environment. We don't often pick this up. We just think a bunch of people have been listed. Okay, that marks the place where they're at. But think about what he's showing us. Herod the Great was the one that wanted Jesus to be killed. That we just read. And now his sons are around. His sons, Herod Antipas. He also had another one named Herod Archelaus. Philip. You might have heard of the town uh, Caesarea Philippi. Sometimes we mention that. It was a town that existed at the time of Jesus. It was named for Herod Philip, his son Philip. We had Romans listed, the Emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Licinius. We had two priests listed, Annas and Caiaphas. And those were appointed by Rome. They weren't necessarily the friends of what God was doing through his people. They were being steered by other powers. In other words, Luke is telling us there were wolves all around. In this time, all of these people, kings who wanted Jesus dead, who weren't aligned with what God was doing, political people who had no care about what God was doing for his nation and his people, corrupt priests even. This is, this is what they were surrounded by. John the Baptist and Jesus were going to enter into ministry in that kind of environment. That same environment existed when Joseph fled to Egypt under Herod and others. But there was more for Joseph. Think about what he had to deal with personally. Joseph had a wife. He had a young son. He had increased taxes. Because we tell, Luke tells us that he goes there to account for taxes. Anybody familiar with increased taxes? Inflation or anything like that? Of that nature? He had difficult traveling ahead with those people depend on because there was a threat to their livelihood. That's where he was at. And I can only imagine as, as, as Joseph is carrying his family back to Egypt, he's thinking about how God had delivered his people out of Egypt, and he must have been thinking, yeah, am I just going backwards in life? i got to trust, but am I going backwards? You know, when all these things kind of add up, and I think we can add to that today, at least, that the culture is killing hope. Did you hear me on that? The culture is killing hope. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, How Should We Then Live? He wrote it in 1976. And this is what he said in the book. He said, autonomy from God, that means moving away from God, rejecting God, is going to lead to no basis for human dignity. It's going to lead to tribalism, factionism among people. It's going to lead to hatred. It's going to lead to a power-based ethic where we want to dominate and subjugate others. 
It's going to lead to a place where we have no sense of external accountability. And he ended up by saying, and we're on borrowed time. He said that 50 years ago. It might sound familiar. When you face these kind of circumstances, do you ever feel a little trapped? Do you ever feel like I don't know the way forward and if we're going the right way? Am I going to crash into an air, you know, an airstrip? Am I going to crash into a lake? Am I against oncoming traffic that's seeking for me? You know, we heard somebody recently say there's kind of using the illustration of the Hoover Dam, you know, that it holds back all these billions of pounds of water and pressure, but every system has its breaking point. And one more pound of pressure, and the whole thing goes. It doesn't just start, it just goes. And sometimes I feel like life can be like that. We can fear the future, can steal that, that hope, that joy. It can even get us to the point where we're paralyzed. I was recently sitting in front of um, somebody that actually at the dental office, and I was talking to them. And they said that they were, and I asked them, how many kids you have? And they said, oh, I have a said, okay. And they said, I'm, I'm actually telling the truth, I'm scared to bring a kid into this world. So I've been watching a lot of videos on TikTok, be careful. <laughs> be careful. I've been watching a lot of TikTok videos, they said of certain events happening and how they're, you know, even like maybe predicting this might be the end. Is that true? Really we're asking these questions. But a good conversation, and hopefully it helped to calm me down at least a little and change the focus so they could put their trust. But look at that. That's, that's the Joseph scenario, right? Bring a kid into this world. You know, I got to fear for the very life. I got to fear for our very lives. What is the future going to bring? We can get totally bound up with this kind of thing, or we can go another way. We can take our plans, make our plans, and not be paralyzed, and realize that regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances that we can't control, we can realize that there is someone who owns the future. There is someone that even reserves the right to it. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We should make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It's something we can use. Because God has plans. And he's not gone. Despite what Schaefer was hearing 50 years ago. Isaiah 46 says, remember the former things. He was reminding them of the past and what they had done. Remember the former things of those long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, but it's still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Translation, I hold the past and I hold the future. And no one will snatch that out of my hand. So you don't need to operate in fear and paralysis. You don't need to operate in anger. You don't need to operate in frustration. You don't need to live there. I struggle with this. There's something uh, that I identified with that um, kind of captures it. Living kind of in the future all the time, worrying about it. I call it life on the horizon. Out on the horizon are many things far off yet fast approaching. Countless challenges on wings. And swift they fly. So I will spend all of my time solving these problems before they arrive. And that's the best way to stay alive. But living here in the now, I'm not sure how. A life lost to the future, while the present is never won. That's called life on the horizon. We don't want to live there. We need to live here now and know who we trust. 
I want to capture an image for you to kind of help us get a sense of this. I was going to point it out. You'll have to wait and see it next week. But in the sanctuary, you might have noticed we had that beautiful backdrop on the stage. And right up in, in the center, right up at the top, if you look, there's a symbol there. It's a very interesting-looking circular, triangular type of symbol. You might wonder, what is that symbol? It's kind of got three branches kind of interconnecting inside the circular form. And that's a symbol for the Trinity. And it was purposely put there for that reason to kind of draw attention to that. And when we think about God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Scriptures tell us from cover to cover that, that, that God has always been personally active in His creation. He's involved, He cares, He's dealing with it, He's doing things. From the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, we see the Father and, and, and the Word and the Spirit involved in creation. But we see more than that because we see a specific plan in Scripture that God has to resolve an uncertain future. Long before we faced any of our uncertain futures, He has a plan. Let me give you a few Scriptures and see if you can follow this. Think for a moment if God knew what was happening, if He had control, if He knew what was going on, or if He got taken by surprise. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us this about Jesus. He was chosen... Before the creation of the world, what was revealed in his last times for your sake. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Revelation 13 calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Before the world was here, that was known. Ephesians chapter 1. For he, God, chose us in Jesus, in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He had a plan going before we were ever around before our circumstances were. In Matthew chapter 5, the final thing, when Jesus tells us we will hear this if we are faithful followers of His and we trust Him to the end, one day we will hear, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, He will say. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Do you think God was ahead of things? Did you hear the familiar phrase? Before the creation of the world, before His circumstances, God had this all sorted. He wasn't surprised by the fall of Adam and Eve and, and anything else that's happened since then and all the circumstances that sometimes just don't go the way we expect including the ones we caused he wasn't surprised he's not making it up as he goes along it's going according to plan and I know sometimes that can be difficult to see because again what we do is we look at circumstances and we go how do those circumstances Show me if God has a plan. How do those circumstances show me if God cares about me? And granted, God can move in circumstances. But that's not always what he leaves us to show that he's got a plan. And I want to leave you with one central thing today. See, Joseph saw wolves all around. John the Baptist saw wolves all around. Jesus saw wolves all around. In fact, John and Jesus both entrusted God with the future they both lost their lives in trusting him to do what he asked them to do. But one of them came back. And God had a plan for us in that. The resurrection of Jesus is not a matter just of faith. It's a matter of history. In fact, the way I might say it to someone who doubts that, who, who wonders if there's something more than just a blind faith, clutching on to this wishful thinking. I might say it this way, 
because there are others who have acknowledged that, uh, that this has happened. And I would say, maybe like this, what if the historians, the ones who know history, the ones who understand things that have really occurred, George Washington existed, you know, as President of the United States, that kind of stuff, right? What if the historians said that he really lived, that he really died, and because of the crucifixion, there was no way he could have survived? What if the historians also said that his followers again saw him alive, and they were so convinced they were willing to die rather than be pressured into saying he was alive? What would their convictions imply? What if the historians agreed that his enemies also said he came back from the dead? And if they died for that belief too, what might their convictions further prove? What if the historians knew that the evidence pointed to his empty tomb? What does all that say to you? The historians have said all of this. The only question is what they would do with it. He came into history with a stunning outcry. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. But the historians can't conclude that he is alive. That is left to you and what you'll choose, faith or pride. That's what I would say to somebody who wonders if there's any reality in this. Because it's been demonstrated convincingly, convictingly, that Jesus came out of that tomb. People still reject it. And even though historians themselves have had to concede that those facts are all true, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to embrace that. But when we do embrace that and put our trust in that, we put our trust in the plan that God has had. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, What I received, he was one of those skeptics, by the way, one of those who didn't believe until he saw Jesus alive. He said it this way, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. The story didn't end there. The circumstances didn't end there. Those were horrible and negative. But that's not where they stopped. That's not the period. That's a comma. Right? That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. That's his brother. Who rejected him. Thought Jesus might have been crazy until he saw him alive. And changed. He was willing to suffer and die for that. And to all the apostles, the last of all, he appeared to me also. And if our only hope hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That is God's plan for an uncertain future. You know, I think if we could design the world kind of without our wisdom, I probably, probably guarantee pretty much most of us would, would design that world in the future with absolutely no crosses to bear. We just don't understand the point. Why have uncertainty? Why have pain? Why have struggle? Why have to sit in a service with jackets on? We just don't understand these things, right? So there's a better way, isn't there? A more orderly way. A more certain way. From our perspective. That's how we might design it. Why go through these things? But God has a different wisdom than us. You know, Christ, and the fact that Christ raised after a cross, gives us a number of things. And Christ answers the big questions, the big issues, 
He may not always answer the small questions, like why are we working jackets, but he answers the big questions. And that's many times those who, who don't put their faith there, they just miss this. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, see, the pagan, that means the person who doesn't believe in God, has rejected all that. It's going a different way. Trusting in whatever. To the pagan, the small things are as sweet as the small brooks breaking out of the mountain. They think they have answers to those things. But the broad things are as bitter as the sea. And when the rationalists, those are people who just trust in what they can figure out and resolve, when the rationalists say that the ancient world is more enlightened than the Christian, from their point, they're kind of right. For what they say, when they say enlightened, what they mean is darkened with incurable despair. Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly man's instinct for joy, he says. It satisfies it supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness something special and small. Joy, he says, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Romans 8. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal to his, who his children they are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. That's the, the curse of sin and decay and death. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers, we also grow. We struggle too. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of our future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, he says, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. I hear those two words, hope and waiting. I think of, it reminded me when I saw this, of the Count of Monte Cristo. The very end of the story, the very final words he says after he goes through years and years of struggle and hardship, and finally is vindicated and finds triumph. And he says these words to basically end the story. Until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to men, we don't know about that, all human wisdom is contained in these two words wait and hope. Wait and hope. And we're not talking about a hope. When we hear that word, we're not talking about wishful thinking. We're talking about a sure, confident hope. You see, Jesus, his answer to a world of pain and uncertainty was that he bore sins. He dissolved them for the future, for all those who trust in him. Now, those are pretty words. But how can we trust him? Sounds good. But how do we know? Well, I can tell you, if, he's, if he died and he stays dead, there's no way to ask him. Never going to be. So it's senseless. It's exactly what Paul said. If, if Christ died and he's, and he's never raised, then it's futile. But if he rose and that actually happened, then it's a sure hope. It's a sure hope. Christ can, he answers the big questions of, of the soul. But he makes, he does more than that. He, he, he dealt, does more than just deal with the hopeless future, the uncertain future. He uses it. 
He uses it in a transformative way. Christ makes something beautiful out of suffering. And that's what makes him truly unique. You know, Helen Keller one time said this. You know, she's struggled with a lot of things in life. She couldn't see, she couldn't hear. She had to figure out how to basically function this world. A lot of crosses to bear. And what's interesting is her perspective on that. Rather than look at the uncertainty and the pain of all that, and conclude as our baby friends did, you know, there's no big answer to anything. Instead, she said this. She said, mountaintops don't look half as sweet as Interesting. Mountaintops don't look half as sweet without the valleys. God approaches it this way. In eternity, our crosses that we carry now infuse something in us if we approach them in faith that will bear greater glory and joy then. That's what God designed. And Jesus has assured us and the scripture tells us, look at Romans 5. We also glory in our sufferings, the apostle says. Wow, we glory in that. We can glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces, produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. There's the hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Jesus God takes these threads, pain, uncertainty, the unknown, suffering, hurt, loss, sadness, in those threads too, along with the joy that happens. But he takes all of these and he weaves together a tapestry. Even more, he weaves together a steel cord of purpose, unbreakable, and of a certain future. Things are going to come up and just leave us in five songs. They do. I just want to put one more thing out there. That I was thinking about all this this last weekend. Uh, a friend who, um, some people know here, um, had been uh, going for a treatment of leukemia. And it was looking like things might continue progressing and resolve before there was a, a turn on that. went home this weekend to be with the Lord. His family didn't plan for that. Nobody planned for that. It was completely uncertain as to what was going to happen in that day. But I know as I stood there and talked to him and we had final word just hours before that, that his words effectively in those final days were, I'm okay because I've got God. I've got Jesus. In the way that we all held hands, in the way that he squeezed that out of those final prayers, showed, showed me that he understood the meaning of First Thessalonians. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns. God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Where do you put your faith? Who are you trusting in for the direction? Because one day, if God tarries, that will be all of us. 
Is your GPS leading you the right way? You know, Herod's line of kings and Romans, military princes, and the high priest dominance, all that passed into the dustbin of history. You've had emperors who have torched Christians and tried to destroy the entire faith. You've had uh, people who have sought to corrupt the faith from within, and like Arius and others. You've had people like Voltaire several centuries ago who said in 100 years, no one will know what the Bible is anymore. All of those have passed into the dustbin of history, but he remains. He has plans to redeem them in a certain future. He has done that. He can transform it into beauty. Who is your GPS? He said, in this world you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Thank you. 